You're listening to the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Follow the show on social media and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. Now, here's Jason and Paul. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is... Paul Gillieri. Paul, we've got a hell of an episode this week. I'm really excited for it, and I've been excited for it since I met the guy in person a few weeks ago, and I told you about it in a very funny way, and what was... before Without giving away the name... What was your reaction when I told you what I said to this person? Uh, well, a, a, I was thrilled for you, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I was even more thrilled at the possibility that there might be a chance that he might come on the show and give us uh, an opportunity to have a, a conversation with him about music and life. Yes. And, uh, well, we're lucky that, that, that he's here today. I want to say, uh, thank you for being here today. You know, we're, we're into the, uh, the business end of 2023 and we've got some really great episodes to end the year with, including this week's. And I want to say that if you like what we're doing here on this show, then please rate review and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform of choice. Feed that algorithm, keep it full, keep it happy. That's the name of the game. And it'll give back. If you feed it, it does get back. It does. It does. <laughs> and, get <back>. um, <laughs> and if you're feeling a little more generous in this giving season, you could also become a state of love and trust patron. The uh, link is in the episode description and the bios of all of our social media handles. Uh, we've got some really fun bonus content from interviews over there, including photographer, Lance Mercer, artist, Brad Clausen, uh, drum tech for Dave Abrazis, Jimmy Schof, and very coming very soon. Dave Abrazis himself. So that'll come mm-hmm. out bonus content um, in the next week or two to satiate your uh, desire for extra goodies over there at Patreon. Um, so head over there and sign up if you're interested in some of the extra stuff and helping out the show. If not all good, you're here now. And uh, this is where we get to the heat of the meat. And like I said before, this is a very cool episode this week. Paul is super, super stoked. Um, this week, we've got a singer from the Seattle scene who um, is almost certainly very underrated. And uh, well, it's Candlebox's Kevin Martin. All right, so here he is, uh, singer, founder of Candlebox, Kevin Martin. How's it going, man? <laughs> I'm good. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Monday night football and, um, you know, I'm just kind of, uh, winding things down, fellas. How about you guys? Are you a Jets fan? Chargers fan? No, no, I just football. If it, if football's on in general, I'm, I'm watching it. No, I'm a, I'm a Seahawks fan. I, I grew up a Cowboys fan. That's like my go-to team since I was walking, but, um, I hate them so much because Jerry Jones owns them. So until he sells the team, oh, no. I refuse to support them. 
I, I will well, say it's better than Dan Snyder owning your team. So you got that's that true, going that's for true. <laughs> I will true. say, you know, not, not to belabor this point, but I am a Cowboys fan. You know, I grew up with Aikman and Emmett and all those guys, Charles Haley and all those guys. <laughs> and I've stuck with, I've stuck through some really shitty years, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I hear you on that. And so <laughs> I, I, I understand why you would jump ship to the, uh, former Rick Meyer led Seahawks. Well, I mean, yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting because I I've only, we played Letterman in 94 and Jerry and, uh, um, uh, Jimmy Johnson was the guest, the same episode no we were on as, as was Rekha Welch. And so I, you know, being a Cowboys fan, I was so excited that he was actually, you know, the guest. And, and I was like, what's going to happen? He goes, as long as Jerry Jones owns that team, you're never going to, he goes, you might get another Super Bowl next year because of Troy, because once he's gone, it's over. And he has, he was absolutely right. I mean, the last Super Bowl was 1995, you yeah. know, for the Cowboys. And it's, you know, for me, like, I love, I just love watching football and, and I admire the sport so much. And I'm, you know, of course, like yesterday's game, Miami with Kansas City, you know, I was, I was so excited to see Miami playing so well. And, and it's not really, I don't support any one team, you know, when the Super Bowl comes around, it's like, if it's not the Cowboys, I don't, I watch it, but it's not, you know, I'm not rooting mm-hmm. for anybody unless it's Seahawks. And, and of course, you know, that the notorious play that, you know, I still can't understand why that was called against the Patriots, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a fascinating game. Like, and I think that it's interesting that as an athlete, you can work your whole career to play on one team and then you get, you know, traded to another team and you never win a Super Bowl and you get traded to another team and win a Super Bowl or you're a Super Bowl winner and you get traded to like the Denver uh, uh, Broncos, you know, with, with um, uh, uh, Rebel uh, Wilson. Um, Russell Wilson. Uh, Russell. Russell Wilson. Never Wilson. Yeah, Russell Wilson. And you're trying to rebuild your career. It's, you know, music musicians do the same thing. It's like you're not trading bands all the time, but you may have a hit and then you're constantly trying to achieve that hit again. It's, it's a, it's a kind of a weird parallel world that, um, that I think we live in with uh, the athletes. Is that, I mean, this wasn't on my, uh, my question, but you've kind of led me to it, Kevin. Is that, (laughs) is that, um, is that what having a song like far behind is like? Exactly what that's like. (laughs) You've led me to it. You're like, you're like producing this episode yourself. Well, yeah. uh, I, I will say you, you've had a longer shelf life than most running backs. So you got. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. 30 years is a long time. <laughs> well, I want to start with what is nearly here, the end of Candlebox. And, and I want to talk about how that all began. Um, you have said that the music and the lyrics on The Last Goodbye are sort of a summation of your 30 plus years as a musician. So. How long did you plan for that to be the case, to be for the, for the final album, this album to be a retrospective type of album with having all new material? Uh, you know, during COVID, um, I, I think that with the release of Wolves and realizing that um, as an artist, you know, Candlebox is, is for the Seattle music scene, we're like the second thought. You know, um, and so, and or the second act, if you will, like Sweetwater and Green Apple Quick Step, and you know, um, My Sister's Machine, and a lot of those bands that came out at the same time as Candlebox did. Um, being a second act band is not a lot of fun. 
and and it's a hard it's a hard place to be as a musician that you know you come off the success of the debut album and you sell whatever four million records in the states and and you've got you know a song far behind that's in the top 10 and the, the, all this stuff's happening for you and you you don't really have a long term long term view of it you're not sure what the extent of that career is going to be um it, the fact that you even reach some sort of success um or some sort of level success at that point um what was happening in seattle was a gift to us um but chasing that for you know 5 10 15 20 30 years um it became exhausting and it's not that i was chasing the success of far behind or trying to write another far behind it's having the success and tasting that success and then slowly losing your footing and knowing that you're a better band than most bands out there knowing that you write better songs than most bands that are out at the same time um it becomes exhausting. So when it came time to do the long goodbye, when I was talking with my wife uh, about this during COVID, um, I said, you know, I just don't want to be a second thought band anymore. And, and it's, and I don't, and I don't want to come across as sounding uh, ungrateful um, or, or jaded, but I mean, it's kind of what it is. You know, it's like, I hate to say that, but I've become the jaded musician that I never wanted to be. And so having that conversation saying i want to put all of this 30 years into this little tiny package and say goodbye to it wasn't easy but the conversation happened and it it set everything in motion and i called the guys in the band and i said you know we're going to do a couple of these cover songs and we're releasing videos and who knows how long this covid thing's going to happen but we'll be back out on the road but by the way when we're back out on the road that's it it's the last time. And um, I want this to be done during the 30th anniversary of the debut album. And the guys were incredibly supportive of it. And, um, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, I I've got a great band with, with BJ Island, um, Adam and Brian, um, my best friends. And, and um, you know, I, I wish I had this relationship with these guys that I had, you know, that I wish I'd had the same relationship with Pete Party and Scott that I have with, with BJ Island, Brian and Adam, because I think Candlebox would have been in a different realm as a band, but, you know, we didn't know one another when we first started the band. I only knew Scott, he, he and I were the only members of, of Candlebox that actually knew one another. So it was a, it was a, a very happy accident for us. And, and I think that that's probably why, um, Candlebox isn't, you know, in that first tier, we're not in varsity, we're JV, if you will. Come on. Well, I mean, it's, it's, if you look at it, if you look at the history of the Seattle music scene, you, I mean, if we, let's go back to, you know, it's circumstance, Pat it's and, not, it's yeah, not by, it, by talent or anything like that. Um, I mean, the circumstance. Yeah. You're, you're in a giant shadow. And yeah. We, I mean, and, and you know, that, that spotlight was enormous yeah, and yeah. we just happened to be on the outside of that spotlight. You know, it's funny, Kevin, um, you just kind of talk about that that perspective evolving. So while you were talking, my, my daughter came in and gave me a kiss goodnight. I don't know if you saw her. She kind of came in and bounced out. Your son's 10, right? 15. 15 now. Okay, okay. So so my daughter just turned nine, and I never thought I'd <laughs> be having a conversation with Kevin Martin about our kids, but <laughs> here we are. Uh, the funny thing about it, though, is that you, you mentioned 
in a prior interview, how that, that lockdown really allowed you to spend more time with, uh, with your family, kind of made you realize a little bit about how much you missed them, prompted you to want to speak to the bandmates back in 2020, actually, about the end of yeah. uh, the desire to end Candlebox when you, once you hit that 30-year mark. I'm curious, how, how did that decision in 2020 to retire actually affect your approach to the, the Wolves record that came out at the time? Because you well, knew it wasn't going to be the last one, right? Wolves had already been done. So, you know, oh. we, we recorded Wolves in, in August of 2019. So, mm. I mean, our goal was to tour entirely through 2020 on it. We were supposed to do the same dates we just did with Three Doors Down was supposed to happen in 2020. So right, right, okay. I, I hadn't planned on ending Candlebox. It wasn't until the pandemic when everything shut down. I was like, you know what? This is the perfect, the, the universe is telling me that mm. it's time for me to stop this. And so it really was, Wolves was, my hope for Wolves was that it was going to be 50, 60, 70, 100,000 records sold and it would be you know, a successful record. I think it's a great record. I think it's um, the production on it's amazing. I think the songs are great. I think the band plays spectacularly on it. Um, I think that um, the this sequencing of the record's really good. Um, it just it lost its footing, you know. And and for us to try and release that in twenty twenty one, you know that that September of twenty twenty one, I. I you know, the record had been, well, no, did we release it in September 2020? Yeah, 2021. Uh, I don't even remember what, what the, the release was, but it, it you know, you, you're just hoping that somebody's paying attention. Um, so the goal was to keep playing. Pandemic happened, and I was able to be a father and a teacher and a husband and a, and a friend and, you know, all the things that go along with being a family member that I hadn't experienced you know, with Natalie and Jasper since he was born. Um, when Natalie and I met, it was 2002. We got married in 2005. The band got back together in 2006. We released Into the Sun in 2008. And I was back in, you know, that cycle, cycle yeah. of, of, of work. So, uh, and my son was born in 2008, um, right when we were making um, Into the Sun. So, uh, you know, it, I just missed so much. So being home, during COVID really just opened my eyes to the fact that I don't love music the way I used to. And I really love my family and, and I love being home and I love being a father and I love being a husband and I love being a teacher and I love being a gardener and I love woodworking, everything that goes along with being who I was prior to Candlebox um, just made itself really, really obvious to me. And that was it. And I, and I just was like, I've got to pick a date and I have to stick to it. And, you know, I took a lot of, um, I took a lot of inspiration and, and, uh, and influence from Michael Stipe, mm, um, yeah. you know, when he decided that that was it, that was it. And, you know, I, there are a lot of people that are upset with me about it. I, there are a lot of responsibilities I have in putting this away. Um, the, you know, the financial ramifications are going to be enormous. Um, the, the people that have been in my life for the past 10 years are, are going to have to change direction. Um, but I can't be held accountable for anyone else. I have to be accountable for myself and, yeah. and the fans, you know, I'm sorry, but 
I don't think you have anything. Life to Life goes on. For. There, there's, no, it really does. The, the whole, I think the pandemic for a lot of people, and Paul and I were talking about this before we got on the show here, is that the pandemic really brought a lot of perspective to a lot of people for whatever they needed. Um, yeah. in a lot of different ways, not just, um, from a professional standpoint or, or a family standpoint. Um, there's a lot of perspective there. Um, you know, with, with growing, with aging, with having families, um, I think, you know, a lot of musicians have found comfort in, in sharing the feelings that they have about their family and their children through their music. And they'll, they'll still write songs through the eyes of their kids or, or from the perspective of a parent. As opposed to, you know, a rambunctious 20-something. This is one of the reasons that we love Pearl Jam uh, so much. Because I think that Ed, over the years, has done a great job of, uh, you know, writing songs about a certain thing, but from different perspectives, from different stages of life. So I, I have to ask, when you were kind of thinking about this in the middle of this pandemic and recognizing what you were missing and, and, and how you were kind of falling out of love, with music in a sense, did it ever cross your mind to, oh man, do I wrestle with this idea of finding the right balance where I can, I can have my family, but I can also emit what I'm feeling through a different perspective than I had before or no? No, not, I'm not that, I'm not the person. Um, I wish I was. And, and I, and I admire, um, I mean, Eddie is, a is, a forced to be reckoned with i mean it's just it, it's unbelievable how he has grown as a musician you know over the 35 years that that you know since he came to seattle i mean it's it's mind-bending and and i have nothing but the greatest respect for that guy and he is i didn't experience the loss or the turmoil or the or the um tragedies in my life that he experienced early on so i i don't think it's easy for me to draw from um desperation um or heartbreak or um you know i didn't i knew my dad i knew my dad until the day he died uh, my parents were married for 42 years i have two amazing brothers and an amazing older sister I'm the baby of the family. My mother's still alive. We're still very, very close. Um, I, I didn't have those stories. Um, it's also, you know, a bit of, of, you know, like I sing on the song, um, on the new record, um, I'm the imposter, the phony, um, you know, it's, it's imposter syndrome or, or whatever the term is. I, God knows how many there are for it. As a musician like myself, where I can pull from my experiences, I did bad shit. I was a bad kid. I got in trouble. I got kicked out of my house. I stole money from parents, you know. Um, but I never, I never lost anybody real close to me, or or had a bad relationship with my dad or my mom or brother or sister that that affected me to the point where I could pull from it to to, you know, continue to create. I'm also not prolific enough or profound enough um, as as a as an artist to write from somebody else's perspective. I'm super super selfish. I'm super um, God. What's the word? Um, well, I mean, you you said you're looking out for yourself uh, uh, when it comes to retiring the band. So I mean, and it's not a negative thing. 
No, but you know, I mean, there, there, there are sides of me that I think just don't lend themselves to being a musician. I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, but I don't have that incessant need to constantly produce um, or to to be writing. Like, I've, there's two guitars sitting here right in front of me, you know, and I've got a a 1972 D45 Martin acoustic and a 1948 uh, J45. Gibson and they're collecting dust you know I mean it's like they're sitting there and I don't I don't grab them and just write it's just not in me I don't Candlebox was I was a drummer for god's sakes I wasn't the singer in a band I'd been asked to sing on these demos I got stuck with this fucking job 35 years ago (laughs) and and I'm still trying to be a drummer in a band you know what I mean fine Kevin, I'll say yeah, to you, you might be the greatest will, happy accident of the nineties that you drum on. <laughs> Our new endeavor, you'll get your bourbon sorted. We'll talk about that later, and then we'll start a new thing in twenty twenty five. It's fine. You don't have to ask him. It's fine. <laughs> Look, you know, Kevin, you uh, you talked a little bit on that the lead song for uh, the last goodbye punks. It's like a warning, you know, um, to younger people. To, to just bust their butt, work their asses off, whatever it is they want to do, right? And you specifically chastised the the influencer culture, rightfully so. Uh, join you in that. Uh, this is a show, I think, we really aim to try to have meaningful discussions around music. And we try to talk a little bit about bands that we love and, and how it takes a lot to kind of break through those algorithms. When Candlebox broke through, it was a different era. And I'm curious, that Seattle scene at the time was was pretty wild and it was fruitful and uh, it was very organic. And I think that's what separates it from today in a lot of ways, at least from an outsider's perspective. You were there, we were not. But how do you just how do you juxtapose that with how young musicians maybe have to break through now? Well, I mean, you know, you're producing, right? A little bit here and there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the obvious, you know, I mean, um, there's so many distractions. I mean, there were, there were no distractions when the Seattle scene was happening. I mean, there was, there was television and there was movies and there was MTV and, um, if only they could master the art of doing an interview while watching Monday night football at the same time. (laughs) These songs they write for these stupid <laughs> fucking games now, so stupid too. Um, but hey, I think you know, hey, the, Carrie Underwood's the, a friend of the show. No, she's not. No, she, the, that's fine. It's a stupid <laughs> song. I mean, it's Joan Jett for God's sakes. Oh, God right. Jones making all the money off this song. But um, I think that the difference is is you know. So let me go back to when I moved to Seattle. I moved to Seattle when I was fourteen years old, and. I moved there from San Antonio, Texas. My first concert was Dead Kennedy's Black Flag Butthole Surfers in San Antonio. I moved to a city where it's raining, you know, constantly. I've got a skateboard on my backpack and it's January of of 1984. And it rains for six months and I'm miserable. But I meet two friends in high school, John and Sarah, who say, hey, we're going to go down to the Grill Gardens. We're going to see this band play uh, tonight. You're going to love them. It's Mace and they're playing with... um, this punk band, um, uh, what are they called? They were great too. They were from Canada. Um, they didn't, they didn't the last long. Punk band from Canada? Yeah, but th- th- they did not last. This was like 1984, 85. So they did not last long. Oh, okay. Um, but it was, I mean, it was Grill Gardens. I was like, this is an amazing venue. This is cool. What's happening here? It was loud. And 
And I was immediately drawn into that environment that was happening. I was like, okay, this is kind of similar to Texas, but it's raining and it's not hot and it's people are weird and they're wearing Doc Martens and shorts and long johns, which is I'll get used to it. It's a different thing for me. So growing up in that environment and watching all of that happen, seeing Tad for the very first time, seeing Screaming Trees and Skin Yard and Grunt Truck and you know all that stuff that was happening, I was immediately influenced, inspired by it. Um, but they were working so hard at trying to get people to pay attention to the bands. And then I became friends with Regan and Sean um, when they had started Satchel and and we shared a rehearsal space and Truly was in the room next to us. And of course, that's Hiro Yamamoto from Soundgarden and he was in Truly. And so I was mixing and mingling in that environment. Um, and I was learning about the drive and the and the passion and, and, and the empathy and everything that was going into the creating this music scene that was happening in Seattle. Um, but I wasn't really a part of it because I was playing drums in kind of this pop band. Um, so it wasn't really until I met Andy when I was 16 that I realized that music was something that I could attach myself to. And it might give me the opportunity that I had hoped for as a young kid, which is becoming a rock star and, 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 you know, touring the world and being the next Peter Chris or, or the next John Bonham or the next Neil Peart, whatever it was that at the time was inspiring me drum wise. Um, so learning about the, the, the drive that it takes to create this music and going into a studio and paying for, you know, recording on two inch tape by yourself or quarter inch tape, whatever you could afford. Um, it took a lot. It, it was, it was a full on, you know, three, four five months worth of planning, getting the studio time, making sure you had the cash selling whatever gear you had to make sure you could pay for it, playing those shows and getting 150 bucks, 250 bucks, whatever it was that you could collect from the shows to make that, to make that cassette tape that was going to get you the shows. Um, that was something that, you know, I, I, I didn't expect to learn from it just changed my life. And I was like, okay, this is what I got to do. That doesn't happen nowadays. These yeah. kids, you can make, you can, I can make a song on my, on my phone right now. We can be on this, on this right now. I can make a song. We are making a song it, right now. There's a beak. Yeah. The, yeah. And if it, and if it's like some sort of catchy part of it, it's a hit. Like yeah. Nobody even cares what it sounds like anymore. And so the biggest difference is, is that as a society, the musicianship has become secondary to the song, which isn't even really important anymore. That's my opinion. I don't think that young bands, now that's not to say there, there are, because there are some amazing bands that I'm listening to, Bad Nerves and James and the Cold Gun. You know, I know that Regan and Stone's Loose Groove has yeah. got some great, great bands right we now. Just, which we, is, you know, we were just at that showcase, yeah. which is amazing. And Tiger Cub and, and whatnot. Those bands are are making a difference. October Drift, this uh, another UK band that's just spectacular. And there are some young rock and roll bands in the states that that have something to say. But then, you know, there's a Greta Van Fleets, and there's the Dirty Honeys, and there's the Rival Sons, and there's the you know the this kind of like what. <laughs> okay you know and it's not that they're not good it's just in my opinion they're not really saying anything that does it feel plastic and that's what 
It does. And that's what punks is about. It's like, you're not, you're not telling me anything that I haven't already heard. And by the way, that gets you nowhere. If you're not, if you're not breaking ground and, and breaking shit, what's the point? I mean, rock and roll is not dangerous anymore. And that's what made Seattle so spectacular was you never knew what you were going to get. I mean, when I saw Mace, it blew my mind. I had never seen thrash metal before. I, I, I had seen punk rock. I'd seen Bad Brains was one of my favorite bands. I mean, I had seen great punk rock, great rock and roll, but I had never seen thrash metal. I had never seen that type of, uh, of songwriting. I've never experienced that kind of songwriting. I had never, I didn't know where it came from. I mean, I'm great friends with Dave Hillis. He was a guitar player. He, you know, he was an engineer on, on several things that we worked on back in the days. And, and I still talk to him every time I go through Pittsburgh. But I, first time I saw him, he was the lead guitar player for this thrash metal band that I fell madly in love with. So, you know, um, that just doesn't exist anymore. There are bands making great music, but they're not going to see the opportunity. And, and that's the, the downside of it. Now, they can tour the world and they might go out and open for Pantera, you know, which is even Pantera anymore. But, you know, it's, it's, th this may happen again. I don't know where it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. But it's certainly not going to be to the scale as which, you know, I saw growing up in Seattle back in, you know, 1984, 85. Yeah. And, and you know, and the way that scene evolved too, Kevin, it's funny because there was, I don't want to call it like a, a backlash, but there was this critical monsoon of saying grunge, right? And when I look back, I mean, you guys didn't sound anything like Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam sounded nothing like Alice in Chains. Alice in Chains sounded nothing like Soundguard. This idea of just trying to put everything into a box and say this is all one sound and this is derivative or it's not derivative when in fact it was all very very different and i think it was that variety that made the scene really really special i think is important and and a lot of it started with bands like screaming trees and, and mother love bone you talked about meeting andy when you're 18 that, that song 16 pardon me uh, far behind is, is a song that's, that's about andy wood um but when i listen to songs like stardog champion or bone china this is shangri-la man of golden words that's where i really hear some of the influence of andy in your sound so i'm, I'm kind of curious what did you dig about mother love bone when you first saw them what are some songs that really still even stand out to you today well i didn't i never saw mother love bone um i saw malfunction quite a few times. Okay, okay, um, okay. Andy, Andy to me, and it's, it's funny, Kevin, uh, Wood is, he's become a friend over the years and he, he told me a story, um, which might be coming out. There's a documentary that's coming out on, on, uh, on Andy's family. It's, I believe it's called in the woods, um, where he's, he actually says the reason that Kevin didn't get the gig with Pearl Jam, cause I sang on the cassette tape that was given out to, no kidding. Uh, Eddie, I, yeah. we never knew that. Yeah, so my um, myself, Ty Wilmer from um, Green Apple Quick Step, um, Adam Seisler from S Sweetwater. Um, I think, um, is it was his name Brad for for Screaming Tree for uh, Grunt Truck? No, uh, the guy who passed away, uh, Mark Lanigan. I forget his name. No, from uh, oh, from, from Grunt Truck. Okay, he died of he died of leukemia. Um, mm. It's a skin yard singer and, and grunt truck. Um, I think he was given the tape and so was Eddie. So, but Kevin Wood said in this documentary, he's like, the reason that Kevin didn't get the, the job at Pearl Jam is because he sounded too much like Andy. 
Annie and I had very similar inflections, the way that we sing, our, our influences were the same. Um, you know, that's the, that's what kind of, when we first started talking about music, when I met him at Fluvogs, when he came to the store, we were talking about our favorite bands and our favorite singers. And like, we were a carbon copy of one another. Everything we listened to was the same. And I was, you know, four, four or five years younger than Andy. I had never met him. So I would have no relationship with him other than meeting him in the shoe store. Um, so, you know, it was everything that he did was something that I wanted to do, but I wanted to do it as a drummer, not as a singer. So mm. when it came time for me to sing on the demos, that the early Uncle Duke stuff that we did with Rick Vaughn, um, Scott and I, um, that's just my voice. That's mm. where it is. That's where it came from. But yeah, Andy and I, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Like Freddie Mercury and like the list goes on and on. Otis Redding, our favorite singers, they were all the same. And, and I think that I probably, if there's anything I learned from Andy, it was really about how to fit the phrasing of what it is that you want to say in this you know passage if it's four bars eight bars 16 how do you get those syllables all to fit and because i'm you know i there i sing a lot of words and and andy did as well and i think that maybe that's kind of what i learned from him is like oh you can rhythmically move this stuff through there and if you you have eight bars to do it, you can get it done in six. And that gives you a little bit of time to catch up for the next phrase. Mm -hmm. That's probably, you know, mainly what I learned from him. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love, I loved Mother Love Bone when it came out. I was like, this is the greatest album ever. I mean, I would have loved to have seen where they are today. You know, yeah. I mean, would they be Pearl Jam? I don't think so. Um yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I think Andy was just so much more glamorous. Um, they would have probably, yeah. you know, they would have become more of an Aerosmith or uh, uh, maybe maybe a Led Zeppelin. You know, just so big that you only tour like every five years, sort of thing. I don't know. I mean, I love. I mean, that Stone album so loved uh, Legend of Page, so maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, speaking of Andy and, and that whole scene and, and far behind, um, that you mentioned Seattle being kind of a depressing place, you know, the rain and the, and the gloominess and it led to what got Andy and got Lane and it, that, which was heroin. And, you know, uh, over the last couple of years, um, we've had fentanyl be like the thing that's, that's been so easy to get and so it's such a highly lethal thing that people are dropping like flies from that. And I, and I, I wonder, you know, you've become friends and you've worked with some younger bands. You know, Paul mentioned that you're producing a couple bands next year, uh, or records, I should say. Um, do you get scared, uh, that some of these people could repeat the history that you kind of watched firsthand in a sense? No, just my son. Um, you know, I, I'm not really friends with a lot of musicians outside of Candlebox. Um, hmm. You know, like I, I keep in touch with Brad Arnold from Three Doors Down um, just because I've known him for so long and, and we've just been friends for 25 years. Um, Chris Daughtry and I were close for a while. Um, 
but you know, I think with his with the, the enormity of his success, um, you know, phone numbers start to drop out of phones. Um, I my biggest fear is where is this planet going, and and what are we doing to one another? I you know, fentanyl is the last thing on my mind. You know, what's going on in the Middle East right now between Palestine and Israel is a huge, yeah. huge button for me i mean and, and it's everything in my power to not you know pipe off about this because you know people like you you, you know musicians should be saying things about this stuff nobody wants to fucking hear what a musician says anymore you know it's not 1960 1970 we're not bob dylan we're not Joni mitchell we're not neil young um and people don't give a shit and it's not going to change anybody's mind. This is the downside of, 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 of the society that we, we live in and where we've grown as, as, as human beings. And, and it just goes, it's just beyond me that we have become these people who can just do terrible, terrible things to one another. And is fentanyl a problem? Sure, it's a problem. It was heroin a problem? Sure, it was a problem. But, you know... Our is everything just amplified now, though, Kevin? I mean, it's not like we no, man. This shit's this shit's been going on, yeah, since the, since you know since the turn of the of the nineteenth century, the twentieth century. Yeah, I mean, you know, our government is involved in so much bullshit, and you know, we've we've orchestrated so many different fucking wars. It's not even funny, and but the rest of the world does the same fucking thing. It's it's just I don't is it, is don't it know, human man. nature, Kevin? Is it human nature or is it or is it learned human nature? I, don't I know. mean, that's why I asked you. <laughs> I think you, I think humans are genuine. I think humans are genuinely kind, and I think that we're caring. But we have experienced so much over the past fifty years, seventy-five years, actually, since World War II. We've experienced so much change, and and it, it's such a rapid pace. So. I don't know, man. I, I I'm sure I'm I'm off on a tangent here, but I just am really concerned about who we are as human beings and what kind of a world are we growing. You well, know, what all, am you know, I? What's my son? Got? I mean, that, that, that's yeah. kind of why I asked the question because you know, certainly from a superficial standpoint, Seattle can be like a like a a breeding ground, I guess, or like a. Um, a wet sponge for for depressive thoughts of the world to kind of manifest, and the way that a lot of people and think about the veterans that come back. If you want to stare it back to that kind of thing, veterans that come back, they get hooked on their opioids. It goes to oxycontin. It goes to fent. So it, it's all kind of connected. I guess is my point, which is why I asked the well, question. Well, no, see, I I don't think you know. I knew Lane, and Lane was not a depressed human being. Hmm. He just tried heroin, and he got. You know, everybody always told me, don't ever try heroin. If you try heroin, you're going to get addicted to it. I mean, Lane wasn't depressed. He was a fucking, you look at those pictures of him in, in 84, 85, 86. He wanted to be in Guns N' Roses. I mean, he was a rock star. He was a, the kindest, funniest, I mean, most gentle human being I ever met. He was not a depressed human being. Chris was a depressed human being. I knew Chris early on. He always struggled with depression. And he wasn't depressed. And he just tried heroin, became a junkie. So my my argument is, yes, yeah, it was depressing. Is that why they tried heroin? Maybe. Or did they try heroin because somebody brought it to him and said, hey, you should try this. 
Yeah, you know, man. I mean, it's it's really I it was given to me. I never tried it, you know, because I had seen what it had done to some of my friends, and I did not want to experience that, you know. Um, so maybe I'm, you know, one of the lucky ones who was able to, you know, avoid it just because I was able to put two and two together and realize that I did not want four out of that. You know, but you know what, Kevin, you, you reflect, anyway. man. Like I, even on the debut album, you look at some of the lyrics. You know, a song like "Mother's Dream." connected to your grandmother. I mean, there, there's even at a young age in your songwriting, you reflected a lot. And yeah. I think that w- when you look at the the last album here, uh, the long goodbye, you could argue that it kind of concludes, I guess uh, the final third of Candlebox's career with disappearing in airports and, and wolf rounding out that era. Uh, maybe the first three albums comprising the first third into the sun and love stories, that middle chapter. And you guys have had a lot of, different band members over the years, including Pearl Jam's original drummer, Dave Krusen. How would you compare when you reflect back now, how would you compare these three acts? Like how are they uniquely different? If at all? (laughs) I mean, the comparisons are. uh, Apples and oranges. Um, You know, the, the, the debut album was Scott, Pete Barding and myself, the happiest accident we ever had. Um, you know, four guys didn't know one another that were able to make a record with Kelly Gray. And, and, you know, Kelly had the the understanding and wherewithal to, to know um, what a band was capable of and, and how to help them find that, you know, songwriting. I mean, if you listen to our cassette tape, um, there are four songs on there that are just horse shit. And then there's four <laughs> songs on there that are really fucking good. It's a band trying to find their footing. Um, and I think that growing through, Lucy and Happy Pills and Scott leaving after the Lucy record because he was not, you know, he wasn't happy where the band was headed. Um, He and I were constantly butting heads about drumming. And, you know, uh, when we were making Lucy, you know, I was, I was very adamant about the fact that I felt he was playing very stiffly and he didn't like that. And so we, we butted heads during Lucy. Um, So when he, when he left the band um, and Dave came on board, um dave was a you know the catalyst for a lot of change musically for us and it was really because his feel was so much more my lyrical and and um melodic and phrasing styles so he and i melded perfectly um together when it came to time to write songs and he was so supportive of what i would do as a lyricist and as a singer um, Scott didn't play that way. And that's not that Scott's not a good drummer because Scott McCall is a fantastic drummer. He just doesn't think like a singer. He plays like a drummer. He plays like Steve Gadd. He plays to the song, how the song should be and what the drummer should do. That's what Scott McCullough does. Whereas Dave Cruzens plays every instrument in the song while he's playing mm-hmm. drums. And that's a different thing. And there's very few drummers that do that. I think that John Bonham was that cat. Um, I think that um, who's the, the kid who plays for um, Manchester Orchestra? Um, I, I Tim, um, because last name that, the drummer for Manchester Orchestra. Same thing. You can hear when he plays that he's listening to everything and he's responding to every single instrument that's going on there. So those first couple Candlebox records with Scott Mercado are growing period. And then Happy Pills and Into the Sun and Love Stories is a band that's found its footing 
but is trying to reestablish itself. Um, writing great songs, um, like a song like Into the Sun on that record. That's one of my favorite songs of all time that we've ever done. And I love how Dave responds to certain words that I say, like he goes, talk, talk, when I do the TikTok sort of thing. And, you know, he, repl- he replies to that lyrically. Um, and in like, even in love stories, when we did turn your heart around, this is a song. Oh, God, I wrote that's for- a great song, man. His drumming on that. <laughs> Thank you. I wrote that with Chris Daughtry. It was going to be a Chris Daughtry song. He didn't use it. So we used it and we changed it up to feel like a Candlebox song. And when I said to Dave, I said, look, I'm kind of feeling like it needs to be, you know, a Kings of Leon sort of ballad with the Dave Cruzan kind of texture of drumming. And the first thing he did was boom. Yeah. I mean, it stands out. Totally. Absolutely perfect. And so those three records, and including Disappearing in Airports and that, because that was Dave, it they're just we we were like a well-oiled machine man um and and disappearing in airports is interesting because that's my first record ever without pete so peter um and, and peter clett and and you know i had written so many songs with him um for so many years um into the sun is basically just he and i in a room for three months just writing and um so it was the first time i'd experienced um writing music outside of of my comfort zone with somebody that I had, you know, become very, very comfortable writing with. And, but I brought in these young, really creative writers, Mike Leslie and Brian Quinn. And of course I was still writing with Adam, my bass player, um, who I've written several songs with um, over the years, including the high watt stuff that I'd done um, when I was outside of Candlebox. So, you know, um, that, that third installment, if it's disappearing airports, wolves and um, the long goodbye, you know, that's a band that um, is, is we're like a, you know, we got 150,000 miles on us. We're a Toyota Land Cruiser that's got some wear and tear on the leather seats, but people still want it. You know what I'm saying? I love it. still cars, got man. value to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, Land Cruiser, you could buy a 1989 Land Cruiser right now. It's still going to cost you 35,000 bucks because it's a great <laughs> car. And so if I can use that as an analogy, that's where we were when we did those three records is we now have all the kinks are worn out. There's some scratches, there's some bending, there's some squeaking, but that car is running like nobody's business. And I think that the long goodbye, you know, people complain that it's only 42 minutes long or some shit. Well, that's the digital version. The the vinyl is going to be, you know, close to 60 minutes long. and and we wanted to be, we wanted to be concise. I didn't want to waste any time trying to smarten up a song. Oh, it needs this part. It needs that part. It's like, they're saying what they're saying. They need to say it like that. That's all it needs. And that's why th- this, this record, the long goodbye is, is so to the point. And the sequencing is 30 years of my life. That's why it ends with, with, um, hourglass. Yeah. Um, well, to, to stick on the Dave thing for just a minute here, um, you know, he obviously worked with you, he worked with Pearl Jam, um, and both those bands, they, they share the distinction of having multiple drummers over long periods of time. Um, and, and for Pearl Jam fans listening, which are obviously are many with this show, uh, that is a comical, but also annoying, uh, footnote to the band's history. Um, 
do you think it's just you know life changes as as bands and and people evolve, or is drumming in a successful rock band a uniquely different thing from some of the other roles? Drummers are pain in the ass. <laughs> are you saying that you're that's a pain in the ass? Then I am a complete pain <laughs> in the ass. Um, you ask, I mean, ask ask any drummer that's played with me. I'm a I'm a nightmare because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's not right. You're not playing it right. That's not the feel. Well, that's what he plays on the record. Well, we're not on the record. We're playing live, and the feel needs to be different live. Like you know, Dave, I never had to do that with cruising. Um, there were moments where I would turn around and go pick it up, and he go, no. Like I'd be like, and he go because he he liked where he was in that pocket and i wouldn't argue with him because at the end of the day he was right i mean he was laying it down it felt right i just felt as the singer maybe because each room is different right when you're playing when you're playing an amphitheater a song that's 120 beats per minute might feel really slow in that environment sure right or it might feel really fast depending on what you're singing I react to how the audience is reacting to what we're doing. So if I would turn around and say, hey, pick it up a bit, he's not paying attention to that. He's paying attention to the whole picture. And that's where, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's what makes a great drummer. A, a drummer, I go, no, man, we're good. I got this. It feels perfect. Don't, trust yourself. You got this. Don't worry about it. I've got everything back here. You're up there doing your thing. And that's what made Dave so, you know, miraculous and, and spectacular. And I, and I think one of the reasons why, you know, Eddie wanted him back so many times with Pearl Jam, not that, you know, um, Jack and Dave Abruzzi's and or Abruzzi's and, and Matt Cameron are slouches at all. I just think Eddie really loves Cruisin's playing. And you watch him on that. He rock said and he roll was Hall special. He said he was man, special. He, he is. And you watch him rock and roll hall of fame, man. It looks like he's going to miss that intro. Bang, and he's right there. He's adjusting the drums. He's still moving yeah, shit around. Yeah. And he fucking hits it right where it's supposed to hit. <laughs> that that's that's John Bonham shit, man. Like and Dave Cruzen is the fucking master of that. I mean, I think about the um uh, I'm I'm sure you must have heard of when 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 uh, Matt got COVID last year, not 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 this year, but last year, and Dave just went up to fresno and filled in and they played nine of the 11 10 songs and i think eddie at some point goes i haven't heard that song play that way in 30 years yeah and it's true because there's something and and matt is a, i mean i love matt cameron i saw him when he played with bam 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 was one of my favorite bands i mean before he joined soundgarden i saw soundgarden when chris was playing drums i love matt's playing pearl jam just feels so different with dave cruiser it just feels now I, I mean i've never heard dave play anything off of yield so maybe it would suck i don't i mean i love it's Jack a hard Harris comparison to make too. because the other drummers never played anything that was not yeah. yeah 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 and you know and i mean but jack irons played 10 stuff and i thought it sounded great i took 11 out on the road back in 1994 in between the rush mm. dates we were doing and you know, and I got to watch Jack every night. I love Jack's playing. You know, I mean, I loved Alan and 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 Natasha and Jack as as eleven. That was one of my favorite bands. Um, but you, there's just you know there's and, and and that's the beauty of drummers, man. Like it's why I love it's why I love playing drums. It's why we've had so many drummers. I think it was so funny in the Pearl Jam documentary when the Mike McCready goes, "Wait, Eddie wants me to talk about the drummers." <laughs> like McCree's like, what are you talking about? Like Eddie's the one who's fired all of them. But and I <laughs> well, didn't mean that. Technically, but, uh Stone fired Dave A. That's that's a yeah. whole point of contention. Yeah. 
but you know, and Stone was right to do. I mean, you know, Stone Stone is I love Stone to death, and and um, and he's a God. He's a good he's a good fucking human being, and he's got a great soul. And he's a great guitar player, and and as much as people like to think that you know Eddie runs that band, I know that Stone's got a stronghold on a lot of what goes on there, and and I think that they're uh, Pearl Jam is 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 one of those bands that will um, go down in history as as the game changers you know um the the bands that like the grateful dead and led zeppelin and and the eagles and you know all the greats that came before them that even though they had numerous drummers or numerous musicians whatever it is there was always one vision and that one vision was to make the greatest records they could make and play the greatest rock and roll shows they could play and a lot of bands lose sight of that and and that's an unfortunate thing and you know candlebox is one of those bands that lost sight of that back in um the late nineties when we were dealing with the, you know, the, the struggles with drugs and alcohol in the band and, and possibly losing our deal with, with, um, Maverick records. I mean, mm-hmm. you lose, you lose sight of, of that goal and it, and it really can, you know, fuck things up majorly for you. Well, I'll tell you, Kevin, I mean, when I, I, and I've never been shy about saying this, uh, but I really believe that Chris Cornell, Lane, Eddie, and Kevin Martin are the Mount Rushmore of '90s rock voices, and uh, you know Scott Weiland, Billy Corgan. These these guys have their fans and, and they're special musicians in their own right. But your voice, and I told this to Jason years ago. I said, "For I don't know how the hell he does it." His your voice is one of the few that to me has ever has ever uh, rivaled Chris or Lane in terms of like power and just range and uniqueness. And as much as we love Pearl Jam and we adore Pearl Jam. Even we acknowledge that Eddie's voice has changed quite a bit since the early nineties. How the hell <laughs> have you managed to keep your voice intact? And you literally sound as powerful as ever on this record, the long goodbye, as you did on the debut. I, I mean, it, you're, you are ageless. I don't know how you pulled this off. Oh, thanks, man. That's very kind of you. I, um, God, I, I you know, that's, you're the first person to ever say that to me. And, and well, to you're, you're, you're the only, that. you, you literally make losing and Lane is a human different story but lane's voice like it makes it a little easier to cope with the fact that lane's gone knowing that we had you for 30 years because i i don't know how (laughs) how do you register like that you know it's um it's i started singing when i was in um first grade i did choir till my senior year of school you know it seemed like a good elective there are a lot of girls in that class and i liked (laughs) girls um well played and you know it just, but I never wanted to be a singer in rock band. I mean, you know, I'd seen the cult, I'd seen Guns N' Roses, I, you know, obviously I'd seen uh, Malfunction, I'd seen Soundgarden, I, I, I saw the Clash, I saw the Police, I, I've seen great singers, I've seen brilliant performers. Um, I, I drink whiskey. I mean, I, that's that's we'll my secret. That. I, I <laughs> yeah. quit. I quit smoking. I drink whiskey. Um, I take really, really deep breaths. Um, I use my diaphragm. I'm using it right now as we're talking. I mean, you know, I think when I had, I had a hemorrhage in 1998, we were on the Happy Bills tour. We were supposed to do um, five shows with the, with the Black Crows um, in um, May, uh, September of, of 98. And I had a vocal hemorrhage in Arizona on stage. And so I had to go six weeks without talking and, and like this before cell phones well you had cell phones but you weren't texting anybody so i was like writing stuff down that i needed from my girlfriend at the time and 
it was a weird experience and it was also heartbreaking for me because I love the Black Crows and and I wanted to play those shows. But I had to go through that kind of reevaluating what I do as a singer. And so I did some vocal lessons when I was able to after six weeks with this guy, Seth Riggs, who um, is, you know, Gwen Stefani's vocal coach. He's, um, I think he was Celine Dion's vocal coach. I mean, he's done everybody. Um, Madonna has done them all. And he had me sing some scales. He's like, what are you doing? But I'm like, I'm doing scales. He's like, well, why are you doing it from here? And I was like, I don't know what you mean. He's like, throw that up throw that up here. And I was like, I don't know what that means. So he's like, uh, he goes, I'm going to come over. I'm going to touch your belly. Just, I want you to do something. And I'm, okay. So he puts his hand on my stomach and he goes, do the scale again. And I start to do it. And he pushes in on my stomach, like really hard. And it forced it up here. And I was like, Oh, that's all head voice. And he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's where you need to sing. He's like, you're, you're a first tenor. You can't sing here. Like Eddie, Eddie's a baritone. So he can sing here if he wants. It doesn't matter because his vocal cords are just like this. Right. But as a tenor, they're like this when you're singing. And they're constantly, they're just very, very, they just do this when you're singing. And, and you have to be very cautious of that when you're a first tenor. Chris Cornell was a first tenor. And, um, and in learning that and learning how to force that song up here for the melody, whatever it is, if I can get that up here, I can carry that long note and far behind. I can do all the stuff in arrow I need to do. Uh, and I can make it sound like it's coming from here, but it's just all up here. And, you know, and that's, I learned that right after I had that hemorrhage in 1998 and, and I haven't had a problem since I've had to cancel, like, I think one other show. And that was in 2000 and 2006, right before the Seattle show at the show box that we did the DVD, I had to cancel a show. And I think it was Louisiana. Let the record show that you were pointing to your forehead for this. Yeah. My forehead. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right here. I'm sorry. You're not feeling head, head song. Yeah. Head head voice. (laughs) The, um, so the original, the original lineup, uh, Candlebox lineup, reconvened a couple years back, live at the Neptune show to do. I think it was the what twenty fifth anniversary, right? Of uh, of twenty uh, fifth of Lucy, yeah, but we're a year later because of COVID. Right, right. <laughs> so this was basically your, you know, MTV unplugged kind of moment, I think. And you, you highlighted those first uh, couple of records. Uh, you covered the Screaming Trees song nearly lost you and chris cornell's seasons why did you choose those songs and as a follow-up do you have any memories of of chris um or thoughts on his legacy yeah i mean screaming trees um were one of my favorite bands um i mean mark lanigan's book um was it sing backwards and weep or read backwards and weep um, is one of my favorite books of all time. Um, I never met Mark. I was always a huge fan. Um, I had seen them several times. And I think when we discussed what we were going to do at the show, I was like, we should really, because Mark had just passed, I was like, we should really represent Mark. And we had covered the song before as a band. We just never played it live for anybody. We would mm-hmm. do it at sound checks or we would do it in, in rehearsals and stuff um back in the day because that was one of our favorite albums when we first started was uh was um uh, uh, uh sweet oblivion and um so to 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 be honest it was just to pay homage to to mark and how brilliant of a singer he was and how great of a band they were. i mean yeah. you know 
save for all of the fuck up shit those guys did to one another. I mean, Mark and Van and, you know, their constant battles. And, you know, I mean, I watched that Letterman um, when Mark got in a fight the night before and, and Barrett wasn't able to play drums. So, um, is it Steve Ferroni played, um, who was Letterman's drummer at the time, right. you know, played drums on it. I mean, I watched that. I watched that at night when it came on and I was like, where the fuck's Barrett? I mean, I didn't know anything <laughs> about it. You know I mean? Weird. Um, he's just such, but, such a serene guy too, isn't he? Which is the weird thing. So funny. Like he really is. Um, so that was just, you know, to honor, to, to honor Mark. And I think seasons was really to showcase, um, Pete's talent as a guitar player. You know, it, it wasn't so much about me singing that song. Um, it was, Pete hadn't played with me for a long time. And I know people really, really miss him when it comes to Candlebox. And, and I do as well. Um, but I, I really wanted the people to show, to, to see how talented of a guitar player Peter Klett really is. And he's a magical, magical, magical guitar player. I wish that um, he felt this, the same way about himself as I do um because the opportunities that he could have playing with anybody are endless you know he could go out with leonard skinner he could go out with the cult he could go out with guns and roses he could play with anybody you know um he's just that talented so um and i love that song it's such a beautiful song and um and also peter cornell and i uh, have become very very good friends uh, over the past few years, my managed by Amy, um, mm -hmm. uh, Peter's wife and Chris's old manager. And, and so I said to Pete, I said, Hey man, um, would you be okay with, if I did seasons and, you know, in honor of your brother? And he's like, I'd love that. So really it was just to pay, um, our respects to two guys that, that we really love, um, uh, their songs and their voices and, and their talents. We're, we're going to be doing a, um a thing with uh the seattle symphony at benaroya um oh. and we are going to be covering um a love bone song um a satchel song um in honor of sean smith uh screaming trees sound garden um and um allison chains so we will be doing five cover songs to honor um some really brilliant singers from seattle wow. that um that we all have admired you know we we played so many shows back in the day with satchel um and we shared a rehearsal rehearsal space with those guys that um when sean passed i was just devastated i loved him so much and and his voice and and um so we'll be doing you know that it's really just these are guys that i miss you know yeah you know it's fun you you mentioned amy um i want to ask you about riptide for a second so riptide off wolves i think i think honestly it's one of the best songs in the band's catalog i think it's an outstanding number man it's uh the beat propels. Uh, I think the guitars are very adept. They're mature. Your voice soars. It's, a, it's just a great example of harmony, tempo, song craft. It's also no surprise that uh, Riptide Society, as an organization, you, you founded with uh, with Natalie and and Pete and Amy to help at risk youth. Um, and it shares the same name as this this very inspiring song. Can, can you talk a little bit about that connection? Yeah, Riptide's. <laughs> it's a track that. Um, Amy found me this songwriter here in, um, in LA, this kid named uh, Mark Lango, uh, and, and, or Longo rather, Mark Longo. And he sent me, he's kind of in that electronic world. Um, 
I guess maybe we're like, you know, Rufus DeSalle and, and Avicii and these cats are living in, mm. but he was writing pop songs and he wants to get into kind of the rock and roll world. He's young. He had a band in, in, um, in the nineties, it was signed to TVT records, which, you know, of course collapsed, um, kind of the, the day it was founded, but, um, he he just never had the chance and he sent me these songs and i fell in love with this track called riptide and i called him up and said hey man you know i want i want to use this song i want to rewrite it with you and i want to make it a little more candle box are you cool with that and he's like yeah he goes all i've got is that first verse and that chorus so i went over to the studio and i started working with him and i sent um an acoustic version to amy um after we just kind of knocked it out in 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 rehearsals and she's like oh my god what is the song i said that's that song riptide that he's like what doesn't sound anything like it i said i know well that's how i hear the song so she's like okay we gotta we have to make sure that this is done correctly so when we got time when it came time to do wolves um with uh dean dechoso um this great producer from texas kids got crazy ears and crazy ideas about music and and producing and singing and drumming. He's a fantastic drummer. Um, She was really, really adamant with him about how this song had to be the song. And we said, I think 15 versions from the studio and she kept saying, that's not right, not right, not right. And we finally, we added the strings. um, This, these, these, two young players that Dean knows from LA that came in and it's kind of the, the strings feel like throwaway to me, which I think is really beautiful about it because oh, yeah. the foundation of Riptide is, is, you know, you're being pulled under and you're just hoping that someone's there to pull you out of that, you know? And, and when you find yourself drowning in that world, whatever it is, if there's no one there to pull you out, how do you find a way out of that? And so these are the conversations we were having when we were tracking the song. And when the strings came in, the, the, um, I forget her name, Evelyn, I think it's her name. who plays the, the, the lead, um, violin part on it. She's like, you know, it just kind of feels like you're drowning. And I was like, that's exactly how the song needs, the strings need to feel like that. And that's why that kind of whole thing she does was like, it just kind yeah. of throws away. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel like you're, you're underwater. And that's when it, we got it right. So yeah. when it came time to do, to redo the song, the acoustic version we did um, at Blackbird studios in Nashville, Amy said, I want Pete to produce the track. And I was like, absolutely. He should produce it. And, um, and he was great, man. He, he, we'd get close. He'd go, not right guys. Not right. Let's do it again. And we were there for about eight hours tracking one song and, wow. and he, he got it right, man. Um, and Amy paid for the entire thing. I've never had a manager pay for anything in my life. And wow. she's actually, yeah, she paid for all of it and I love her to death. And I, and I apologize to her on a daily basis for quitting on her, but, um, she's like, you're the only artist I want to manage. And if you're ever ready to come back, I'll still manage you, you know? So, I mean, I love her to death and I love Pete and, and Riptide Society. We've got our first, our, our inaugural annual event coming up in December. We got the first in, in Austin, the second in Dallas, they're both sold out. Um, and I want to turn this into, you know, my, we just did the better life foundation for three doors down and those guys raised $2.5 million every time they do it. And that's what I want to get to. I want to give, I want to give back to that community, you know?
That's fantastic. Well, you know, Candlebox is you know, the final show is as it stands January 14th in Adelaide. Unless, of course, you want to play like a club gig in L.A. that we could just kind of show up to. That's well, no, no, we, no the, big the deal. One's going to be with Benaroya Hall, um, which oh, okay. we'll announce. Oh. We'll announce. But yeah, that'll uh-huh. be the original band. Oh, oh nice. okay. okay. Well, uh, that aside, uh, <laughs> what would you say then? What is the Candlebox legacy? And what would 24-year-old Kevin think of what your answer is going to be? <laughs> uh, 24-year-old Kevin would probably be like, we're not even going to last that long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, yeah, 24-year-old yeah. Kevin, we did it. <laughs> yeah, 24-year-old Kevin probably would be, be like, if we make it that long, I'm not really sure what anybody will say about us. Um, but I think what I've what I've learned to realize about Candlebox is that maybe our legacy is that we were we were the, the the most unknown successful rock band from Seattle that wrote some really brilliant songs that changed millions of lives and somehow it was able to last for thirty years. I mean, I just I honestly don't know. I don't know how to describe what Candlebox is because it's changed so much. I mean, you know, like even now when I sing Cover Me, the song is an entire, entirely different idea for me. So I don't know. I think I keep changing my mind as to what Candlebox means. And I'm not really sure what our legacy will be. I, I'll be interested to find out what people have to say about us. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people that hate Candlebox and a lot of people that think Candlebox isn't, you know, shouldn't even be related to the Seattle music scene or, or in, the, in the same realm or in the same conversation as, as bands like Alice in Chains or Soundgarden or, you know, Screaming Trees, Greg Truck, uh, My Sister's Machine, Sweetwater, Green Apple, Quick Step. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Mother Love Bone, you know, Best Kisses in the World, blah, 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 blah. Um, Pearl Jam, you know, I mean, God, I... I'm so glad I don't have Eddie's problems. You know, <laughs> I can go outside anytime I want. I go to the grocery store. I go. I go shopping. I do whatever I want, and nobody knows who I am. Well, I you love you, that. You went to a, a a small little rock show party, and I recognized you. So here we are. Well, but I mean, come on, you know, that's that's an easy <laughs> one, Kevin. If 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 that debut came out in 1990 instead of 1993. Different I'm story. telling you, man, it's a very, very different story. It really, really is. I just feel like it was easy you're, to hate. You know what I mean? You're absolutely right. That, and I agree. With you. So I, I'll tell you, um, you're starting a bourbon company yeah. and you have plans to release next year, right? So Jason and I de- definitely fans of the spirit. I'm an avid Scotch drinker. I dragged my, my wife to Scotland actually for, uh, for our honeymoon. Oh, wow. <laughs> but bourbon itself. I mean, I'm a big fan of Jefferson reserve. I think it's, it's smooth, gentle on the nose, bold, restrained. I'm curious, what are you going for with this release next year? Well, we're doing, so, um, our, our blend, um, the guy that's creating our, our bourbon for us. Um, we're going to do a bourbon, a whiskey and a, um, a single barrel. Um, so what we're looking for is more in the, um, more in that kind of 90 and above proof. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've ever had Noah's mill. Yeah. 
Noah's Mill is one of my favorites. Um, anything that's in that kind of Willet uh, Blanton's um, okay. mm. area, yep. that's where our that's where our palate is. So it's more of a more of a neat um, more of a neat drink. Uh, it's going to be something that's going to go that's going to pair well with a cigar. It's going to pair well with um, uh, you know a nice large uh, cube of, of ice. Um, it's something that will um, that will carry. It will carry a flavor with you and you will look for it. So, because I've tried so many, man, I, I have, I think I've, I, I may have tried almost every single bourbon that's on the market over the past few years. And, and I've had the, I've had the pleasure of, of getting to know Drew who owns Willet. So, um, I mean, he and Willet owns Rowan's Creek, Noah's Mill, Blanton's, I mean, they have all of them. So. I've had, you know, the pleasure of tasting some pretty spectacular shit. And, um, and I think that that's kind of our idea is to give you something that when it, when it touches your palate, you're going to remember it. And, and it's not going to be a Woodford. It's not going to be a, a Mickner's. It's not going to be a, you know, any of those ones that, you know, kind of have that knob creek, they kind of have a little bit of a, of a, um, I don't know, uh, What's another, uh, you know, Basil Hayden's like, that's a very safe bourbon and you can drink it all day long. And, and, you know, and it's, it's like a working man's bourbon. Mm-hmm. We want something that, that is, is you're gonna be like, I'm going to sit down and have a glass of that tonight, you know, that's and kind, it's a and kind of source whiskey. <clears throat> exactly. You know, and that's, that's what we want. And, and, and I think that there's, you know, there's plenty of room for that. I mean, we're going to do a tequila in about three years. So like, you know, it's, it's really our company's called Lost Marble Spirits Company. So, um, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's something that I've dreamed about for a long, long time. And, and, and um, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Who knows what's going to happen with it? You know, I think that we're lucky that we've got distribution already. We've got, yeah, wow. um, nice. we've got our casks and everything in order. So, you know, I think that if we don't launch by the end of next year, it will certainly be by the spring of, of 25. You know, it kind of takes about, you know, 12 to 18 months. Yeah. Okay. Is there, um, excited. Go is, ahead, there a, is there a mescal in the future? Cause my, my wife would be super stoked if that was the case. <laughs> I am, I'm not a mescal fan, but my partner Nick is. So, um, oh. I'm sure that we'll probably venture into that. Our tequila is, is the Fortaleza family. So, um, nice. we're doing very, very small batch, um, short run high end tequilas. Um, and, you know, it's not about getting rich quick. It's about having something that, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, I'm, I'm still sipping on going, yeah, this is mine, you know, yeah, and, yeah. um, and try it out, you know, because it's, it's life is short and, and I want the, it's one of the reasons I'm retiring now. I'm 54 years old. I, if, if I've only got 20 years left, I want to enjoy every fucking minute of those 20 years. Yeah. Um, I hopefully, hopefully, I have more than twenty years. But I'm yeah, just saying. Yeah, I was gonna say, twenty is not that long, man. You, you go longer than that. Um, holy shit, this has been a fucking great ninety minutes. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know you said an hour, dude. I'm so fucking apologies uh, no, for no, keeping you this long. Uh, no, no, it's all good. It's all good. Thank of, you. Of you taking this time. Um, you know, we're probably two two and a half miles apart, but like, it, it feels like. We've had like a, a couple of scotches in a room and, and had a great conversation about about art and music and life. And um, I hope we've been able to ask a couple of questions that you maybe haven't quite heard. At least in the maybe several. A long time. Oh, good. Several, actually. Fantastic. Victory tell, is ours. <laughs> tell your friends. Um, yeah, I, I'm just super stoked that we were able to uh, talk to uh, a quarter of 
um, Paul's Mount Rushmore of singers because I, <laughs> I, I I don't know that I disagree with him either. So uh, that's very sweet. Thank you. Candlebox, the 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 double LP with extra songs and a different sequencing is out in mere days. Yeah, the digital version. By the way, the fucking digital version being only ten songs, and in, in the in the in the label saying it had to be. Dude, fucking degradation trip was twenty five songs. I realized I had to be cut down for Jerry Cantrell because of a physical disc. There's no physical disc restrictions on this thing. No. What was there? What no, was the reason? Because labels are fucking lame. They don't want to pay the. They don't want to pay the royalties on more oh than twelve God. songs. God damn it! Uh, you know yeah. that I understood. Swan I understood, song. I understood him doing that, but like, yeah. anyways, we had we faster. had twenty two. We had twenty two songs for this record. So I'm looking forward to the 10th anniversary edition in 2033. Well, the funny there. thing is, is like, you know, everybody's like, well, you're, you know, you're retiring. I'm like, well, you know, I have another fucking seven songs floating around. <laughs> you know, listen, listen, Kevin, 2025 will come around. You'll be, you'll be raking in. You'll be swimming in that tequila money. You know, Jasper's going to look at you. Money first. You're so, he's like, going to look at you one day. He's going to say, dad, get out of the house and get and, on the well, road. You know what's going to happen? Your son's going to be like, Dad, I wrote this really cool riff. And you're like, son of a bitch, they bring me right back in. <laughs> I swear to God, I wish you would. Now, listen, and by the way, guys, um, thank you for, for this. And thank you for taking the time. And I really, really uh, have enjoyed every minute of this. It's been a real pleasure. And please, can we get together outside of this and have some whiskey somewhere? Absolutely. Uh, I would love to, Kevin. I, I really do appreciate you coming by. I know we're a Pearl Jam podcast, but we're also a podcast about the music of um, of that feeling and, and the guys in that band and who they inspired and who was inspiring them. And I think, I think the Candlebox is in that world, uh, very much so. And I think you're in that world and, and I, I'm just so pleased that we got to, uh, to talk to you. Thanks guys. Thank you so much, Jason. Appreciate yeah, that. You, you are on the varsity team for us, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Your letter jackets in the mail. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. Uh, it's Candlebox's Kevin Martin. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Wow. Again, big thank you to Kevin Martin of Candlebox and soon to be uh, bourbon and tequila uh, proprietor. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm very excited to partake and uh, very grateful, in fact, for uh, for Kevin's c- candid and uh, very authentic presence on the show. Always been uh, um, a huge fan of Candlebox and uh, of Kevin's contributions to music. One of the, the great elder statesmen of rock and and as i said before definitely jason on my mount rushmore of rock voices from the 90s it, it's hard when you listen to the catalog you really listen to it you you put everything outside of your mind you listen to the songs yeah and and the, the question we talked we asked him about about his voice it's like yes how many singers do you know that can sing like that and have done it the exact same way or damn near the exact same way for 30 years it's a There's something special. And, and, I, the, the, and the only thing better than the voice is the person. Just what what a fantastic human. And uh, just it, it's always a pleasure. We talk about community on this podcast yes. all the time. And, and we've had the uh, one of the great joys of this process is just having wonderful people on and, and, and the, the community that comes from this, this experience. So could, could not be more thrilled and grateful. So thank you, Kevin Martin.
Thank you, Kevin. Indeed. Uh, we, I hope you guys really enjoyed that conversation. It was a bit long in the tooth, but I think it was fucking worth it. And it was, um, it's just, you know, it's one of those conversations we want to have and it, it, it's not, it, it's not a hundred percent Pearl Jam, but it's Pearl Jam adjacent for those of you who are, who've been here for a while. Um, but we want to talk to people who, who write and create music that, that we love. And I, I think that you, I hope that you got something out of that. Um, cause I sure as hell did. Yeah. And, 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 and if you are, if you're a Pearl Jam listener and, and you have checked out the boards, I can't tell you how many times I've seen how underrated Candlebox is. That that is a comment I see on the community and the message boards all the time. And uh, if if you were curious and you gave this episode a listen and you have yet to take a deep dive into the music of Candlebox, please let this be your segue. Absolutely. Well, like I said at the beginning of the show, fucking 19 hours ago, we have got a number of really cool interviews coming up through the end of yep. this year and, and into 2024. But for the end of this year, they're, they're lining up and I'm very excited about those as well. Hopefully, hopefully you really enjoyed this one. If you did, uh, we'd really appreciate a like, a subscribe, a comment, uh, a conversation starter. If you want to do the Patreon thing, cool. If not, no worries. Let's just let's just tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the episode, um, and get people in here who want to listen to Kevin Martin talk about so many damn things. Uh, it was just a lot of fun to listen to him and to talk to him and get to know him. So there you go. Uh, where we go from here? I don't even know. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. If you're wondering what we have in store, more interviews, more content and more segments that uh, might be familiar, some some unfamiliar. I think you guys are going to dig it. All right. Well, we will see you back here next week with another episode. And until you do, until we do, you've been listening to The State of Love and Trust. State of love and trust.